and again and defended. I hope that your hearts would be there. Trinitas Church, one of the tragedies of Christianity today is that so many Christians know precious little about our great hope. It's my desire that you would leave here today having that hope in the resurrection rekindled. We're going to take up at a place in Paul's argument. Paul has been arguing in the last 34 verses that belief in the resurrection of Christ and in the resurrection of believers is central to what it means to be a Christian. He's now going to deal with an objection to this doctrine. That the resurrection seems crazy. How? How, say its detractors, is it even possible? Let's bow our heads before we go to the word, knowing that in fact, in our hearts as well, there is something incredible about the idea that we will one day rise from the dead. And let us ask the Lord to open the eyes of our heart. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we come to you with hearts that are inclined to doubt, to take your word as incredulous, Lord, to take its promises as things bizarre and even impossible. Mighty God, we ask that you would lift up our souls, lift up our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say. Lord, that we might look with the greatest imaginable anticipation at what there is to come. That we might look to eternity with some greater insight into what your promises about it really entails. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen. You got your Bibles, open them up, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 35. We're going to read to verse 44. When we're done, we always say, this is God's word, and you respond, thanks be to God. We rise to our feet, just briefly, sing a short verse, the Gloria Patri, so that we can always have the idea that this word is a special word. It's God's word. And it needs to be praised as soon as it's heard. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-five. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is God's word.
Trinitas Church, we're going to get right down to business. Paul opens this section of his argument, anticipating the argument of his opponents, how and with what sort of body might people be raised from the dead? How are the dead raised? Ask yourself right now if the whole idea of resurrection from the dead seems a bit bizarre to you. Does it seem strange to think of bones, some of which are 2,000 years old, and wherever they're scattered on this earth today, they might be covered in bugs, might be half eaten away with bacteria, maybe scattered by animals. Does it seem bizarre to think that one day these bones and the bodies that once animated them will be risen from the dead? Does it sound to you more like a bizarre, a bizarre movie about zombies getting up out of their graves and reaching out of the ground? Does it seem crazy to you? Does it seem the more crazy when you think about the fact that some bodies have been cremated and their ashes now maybe spread over some vast mountain range? And you ask the question, what does it even mean? For this body to be raised. Or or maybe are you like some of the Corinthians. Who didn't even like the idea of resurrection. Because many knew that they were born with a deformation or a disability. But they knew they had a body with a certain proclivity to cancer. And the question would be why would I want that body anymore. With all of its weaknesses and frailty. What good news is there in resurrection from the dead? If these are the bold-faced objections to the doctrine of the resurrection, I think that many of us as believers have similar objections, light. Light objections to the effect that you go, well, this idea of resurrection I know is something that Christianity teaches, but I think precious little about it. Because like those who simply don't believe in it, it seems crazy to me. And I can't paint much more of a picture of it than they, than they, the unbelievers, do. Do you speak the creed, I believe in the resurrection? But in no meaningful sense, do you really anticipate it? Trinitas Church, Paul responds to this basic set of objections with one simple concept that we'll expound in about four different ways, and it's this simple concept. We've lost, by our familiarity with the world, a sense of wonder. And if we carried about in this world with a proper wonder for just how magical all of the happenings about us are from day to day, we would have no trouble believing in the resurrection at all. Friends, when we become familiar with things, we begin to lose a sense of wonder about the world in which we live. And if we still had that sense of wonder, that awe at what is happening every day in the natural world around us, we would have no trouble believing in the resurrection. Our eyes have grown dim. We aren't observing what's happening around us. In Stephen Meyer's book, Darwin's Doubt, he tells the story of Charles Darwin and um, one of his contemporaries, a man who was more famous at the time among the scientific community, a man named Louis Agassiz. 
He was one of the great biologists and zoologists of his time. And he believed the very opposite of Charles Darwin with respect to the origin of the human species. He believed that every species was the embodiment of an eternal, unchanging form. The interesting thing about this Swiss-American scientist, Louis Agassiz, is that he had a resolution. He was highly respected, by the way, by Darwin. Darwin said that Agassiz's opinion was, was uh, equal to that of 10 other scientists because he was so learned and careful in his studies. But he had a resolution. He had a fish tank in his house with a single fish, and he made a resolution every single day to observe something new about that fish. Think about a fish. Not a massive creature. Agassiz was such a profound scientist because he had this power and this desire to see new and wonderful things that he knew were there. And he went looking for them. I only wish that we as believers had that same resolution. To make the point simply, if you meditated on what you take for granted every single day, you would have no doubt in the powers of God. Listen to what Paul says. In verse 36, you fool, that which you sow, he's talking about sowing seeds as a farmer, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Have you ever considered, friends, that the things that we put into the ground that are to grow up out of it look nothing like the wonderful organic structures that they become? Have you ever considered, if you even have a garden in your home, how radically different a seed is from a full-grown plant? Many of you know that the Bossermans, we only have one crop in our yard, one crop that we're serious about, and it's raspberries, the objectively best berry of all the berries that there are. It's our one crop. What these raspberry seeds become is radically different than the seed itself, and the fruit that they bear is, as well, still more radically different. If you consider how seeds grow, they grow in conditions that would kill a full-grown plant. You actually put a seed into the ground where it can receive no light to do photosynthesis, but at the stage of a seed being deep in the ground, covered by earth, is exactly where it needs to be to grow. If you looked at that robust capacity for growth underground that a seed has instead of the full-grown plant, wow, what would happen if I took this whole sycamore tree and put it underground? Wouldn't it grow even more? No, it would die. It would die. Same is true of the human body, which grows in robust ways in its mother's womb. You're not going to gain any more life if a man re-enters his mother's womb, as Nicodemus suggests that maybe being born again means. That is to say, the conditions in which a seed grows are virtually conditions that would kill a full-grown organism. It's also remarkable that the fruit produced by any plant is nothing like the stem that produces it. Just so you know, if your thought about raspberries is that somewhere squeezed in that stem is a raspberry in there just waiting to pop out, that's not how it works. And I think you know that. The radical change and transition that we see in the world all the time is so wonderful that if you gave it any attention at all, 
What God is working in the natural world, you would have no trouble believing that that very same God could have a resurrection body to life for each one of us. I'll note this as well. In every process of change that we see, God is always the one who gives the body. Many of you might say, yes, Brant, but there's this strand of DNA that's telling, telling things to develop and change in these specific ways. It still doesn't mean that we have any comprehension just why and how. Once that design code is there, the actual outcome is happening. We still have no comprehension at the end of the day why these protein combinations should have these particular attributes associated with them. Why light at this hue should look green in that wonderful distinct way that we see that color as opposed to another. God is always giving the body. This makes me reflect for a moment. I actually read um, one of the foremost defenders of evolution in our day, Richard Dawkins. I read his book called The Greatest Show on Earth. I want to suggest to you that the book is actually better than you might think. It's his defense of evolution. And so much of the evidence that Dawkins sets forth really is a great and wonderful show. A wonderful show that I submit, if you gave your attention to it, would not lead you to a naturalistic worldview denying the existence of God, but to the opposite. One of the wonderful things that Dawkins talks about is how we see something like an evolutionary process in the development of a human from conception to birth to adulthood. I think it's a wonderful and amazing point that what you were when you were conceived is so radically different from what you are now. I would just point out to Dawkins that that didn't take two billion years. That actually just happens in nine months. You haven't appreciated how radical and powerful the development and change in this world really is and how God closed things with a body. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says this, Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. We failed to consider it. Friends, there's a sense in which, as believers, we believe in an even more radical, radical set of alterations in the world than any evolutionist does. We believe that things have changed remarkably and rather swiftly over time. If you're aware of this, but when God created the world originally, there were no thorn-bearing plants. We believe that in the course of one day, as God cursed man for his sin, that the world was radically altered. Species were radically altered. By the plan and design of God, God says, Cursed is the ground, both thorns and thistles will grow from it. Those thorn-bearing plants that you see now, everything from a rose to sticker bushes and their blackberries, represents a radical alteration of this natural world as we know it. God did it. Not only that, there are many other examples. Many of you may not be aware of this, but there was a time on planet Earth when men lived to be upwards of hundreds and hundreds of years. But God's simple command, right before the flood, that antediluvian world where people lived to such great ages ended, and God altered the human species radically so that we would not live much beyond 120 years. So it is today. 
The ecosystems of the world have been radically altered by things like a worldwide flood. And my point in telling you all of this, friends, is that the very nature of bodies as we know them already have radically changed in certain ways by the command of God. Even then, there are instances of microevolution that we all believe in, that you can isolate certain traits in different regions where you're more likely to do better there. And so we see as well still wonderful changes in the human body. Paul's point is that God is always the one overseeing and giving the body. Why would we ever doubt that he could raise from the dead? Paul goes even further to have us contemplate the fact that even right now, there are radically different types of living things that ought to point us to the fact that there will be a radically different sort of human existence to come. And it shouldn't surprise us says in 1 Corinthians 15, 39 to 41, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish, and woe, even more. There are also heavenly bodies. He speaks of the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars. Friends, when you observe the natural, I think you know, a lot of us are going into a school year. I hope you bring some wonder to the tasks of learning with your kids so that that wonder which fuels belief in the resurrection would live and grow. I hope you ask your kids to consider how remarkable it might feel to have the hollow bones of a bird to be light everywhere you went, to have the powerful cat-like movements of a bear. Have you ever actually seen a bear in the wild? One spring, my mom and dad and my wife, before we had kids, we went on a drive up to a place called Lake Dorothy, right outside of uh, Skykomish. We're barreling up the road. It was early spring. I just wanted to be in the wilderness. And we took a turn, and there was a bear in the middle of the road. And when this bear saw our car, it skipped about like a household cat two ways and then bolted up the hill. It was incredible cat-like movement. It was the fruit of a body radically different from our own. When you consider the incredible things that the bodies of various animals can do, it is almost like magic. I don't know if you know this, but honeybees fly around with a positive charge all over their body. Kind of like when you have static electricity, you know that? When they approach pollinated, pollinated flowers... Those flowers have a negative charge and their whole body can feel it. When the pollen's been removed and it's gone, they can't feel that negative charge and they drop down and leave right away because they know there's no pollen there to be found. Can you fathom what it would be like by your body's vibrations to just know if there's pollen on a plant? It is unlike any sort of body you've ever known. It's not just things like bees in the air. I don't know if you've ever heard of a mantis shrimp. A mantis shrimp apparently can, has 12 color receptors instead of our human three. That's to say, when we look at a rainbow, we see six or seven distinct colors, either as the primary three or combinations of them. That's what we see. A mantis shrimp would see exponentially more colors if it could peer straight at the rainbow. Even more, mantis shrimp actually seem to communicate with one another by the colors that they bear. They can look and, by visual receptors and see different messages, messages on other mantis shrimp. It is remarkable. Can you imagine communicating by color? 
Trinitas Church, these things become even more staggering when we consider heavenly bodies. Heavenly bodies referred to stars, and what Paul knew was that they were brilliant. They were universally seen by every people because they were so high in the sky, and they had a longevity to them. From generation to generation, basically the same stars that you see is what people saw 10,000 years ago with little variation. And therefore, stars have always been measures of time. Because like a measuring stick, they stay the same when everything else fluctuates. Friends, that's what Paul knew. We know things about stars that are even more incredible. When you actually start to speak of the radical, staggering size of these bodies, it bends the mind. There's an incredible YouTube video. I know, surprise, surprise, Brant knows of a weird YouTube video that you can watch. But an incredible YouTube video where you can see the relative size of the earth to the sun, of the sun to some of the bigger stars, and of the sun to the largest stars. And when you see this little line of comparison and you get to the big stars, you can't even see the sun anymore because it is incomparably smaller. One such star is a star called Riggle. It's 75 times the radius of the sun, and it's part of the constellation Orion, and it's 40,000 times brighter than that sun that we can't even look at from our current distance straight on. But the properties of these bodies are even more incredible. I don't know if you know this, but it would appear that these massive bodies, what they're doing is actually bending space. If you had a trampoline and you put a a bowling ball in the middle, it would obviously bend that one surface of space. And of course, if you drop something in it, it would probably go around in a circle till it reached the center because that body is bending spatial reality. Have you considered how radically different the body of a star is from the body that you carry about in? You and I don't bend space. Just so you know, if you're sitting on your couch gaining lots and lots of weight to become like a star, to bend space, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen, friends, because it is a radically different type of body. Friends, if we even looked at human creativity and could see how we manipulate the world and the wonder of how we are able to manipulate the world with some human creativity, you would again have no trouble believing in the radical changes that God promises. It's even in mundane things. As I was writing this sermon, I got lunch at Taco Del Mar and I began to think about the nachos that I was eating. What a radical recreation and formation of the world this is. Here's the thing. If you gave me a milk cow, a beef cow, and you gave me some corn stock, and you gave me some pinto beans, I want to promise you something. I don't think in my entire lifetime, if I tried, could I reproduce those Taco Del Mar nachos. I don't think I could do it. Tony Farrell might, because he's always into learning how to do things himself, but I couldn't do it couldn't do it. The world that we live and move and breathe in has wonderful alterations of the world round about us in automobiles and airplanes, plasma TVs, that these bodies are so radically different than what you will find growing on the trees. It's staggering. Friends, the conclusion of these first series of arguments from Paul is this, we have failed. We have all alike failed to meditate on the wonders of creation as the psalmist does in Psalm 65. And it is not because we're too busy. And it is not because we have too much going on. It's because of sin. 
See, we live like we're the main character of some story and the happenings in this tale of our lives are so blasted important that we don't have time to wonder at the masterpieces of God. We miss the divine artistry in almost anything. And until we get to the Grand Canyon where it's so staggering and large and rarely to be seen, we carry about as if the world in which we lived were mundane. I know many of you know that Jesus died for your sins of lying and of theft, that he died for our sins of adulterous thoughts and murderous intentions of our heart. I need you to know something. Jesus also died for the sin of our calloused lack of wonder. Our insensitivity to the wonderful things in this world that ought to draw out praise at all times. He not only died for that sin, but he rose from the dead as the first fruits of the most wonderful sort of body that God would ever make, the first fruits of a resurrection. I'm gonna tell you four things about this resurrection body that I hope will leave you wondering and praising and glorifying God. After having talked about the radically different types of body in the world, God says this, Adam's body, it differs from Christ. He says in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. Perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. He is talking about that first body made of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. It is like a seed sown It had a certain sort of characteristics that differ radically from what humanity was to be. The first is this. Adam's body was made so that it was perishable. That is not to say that it would have naturally died through the course of time through natural causes. Adam's body could die for only one reason, and that's because it could sin. If Adam hadn't had fallen, he wouldn't have died, but he was perishable because he could fall and he could die. Trinitas Church, the contrast for you to consider today, the first one I hope you will have before your mind is this. If you believed in Jesus Christ, you will be risen from the dead with a body that is imperishable because it can not sin. Have you thought about this wonderful body? When you rise from the dead, you will have a physical incapacity to ever sin again. Let me describe what this is like. How many of you have ever felt tempted to fly? I bet none of you because you have a physical incapacity to do it. How many of you ever felt tempted to see color like a mantis shrimp? You might have wished for it, that you didn't feel tempted to it because you just can't. You have no temptation to these things because they're outside of the realm of possibility. Friends, I want you to think right now about a day when you are incapable of discontent. You are incapable of jealousy. You are incapable of doubting the promises of God. It is beyond you like flying through the heavens with wings. I want you to think for a moment about a day when you are incapable of harming your neighbor, your loved ones, your children, your parents. You are incapable of offending or of bringing them down. 
any more than the stars can deviate from their courses. I want you to contemplate a day where you are incapable of lapsing from a state of pure, overflowing joy. You can no more do it than you can grow wings and fly. Trinitas Church, the glories of this body, if you give it, some of your attention will bring you joy in the present. Let your imagination run wild at the pure, unfading joy of the resurrection to come and that is promised to believers in Jesus Christ. Hear the words of Peter. He opens his epistle in 1 Peter saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is the great promise Is your anticipation focused on it? The second wonderful contrast of this body with which we are to be raised is stated in 43, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Trinitas, Adam's body was not made bad, but it was not yet honored. One of the most obvious reasons for this is he didn't wear any clothing. I know many of you I might have it in your mind that the only reason we wear clothes is because after the fall, we became susceptible to the elements, and that's true. But here's the thing in the Bible, wearing clothes, wearing robes is always a mark of glory, of ascending to a higher status and position. Even today, people who wear robes are ostentatious very often. At the men's retreat, I don't know if you know this, but it actually turns out that uh, the rapper Macklemore was present at the men's retreat. I know you're like, I'm dead serious. Some of the guys saw him in a track suit and he probably had some, you know, foofy things that he's wearing all over his body. When you're a rock star, a rap star, you can do that sort of thing and it's considered glorious. What you wear, your garb. You're like, you're kidding me. Up in Lakewood, yes, for real, guys. He was there. He was a speaker for another group. The what we wear is indicative of a certain glory is obvious to most of us. In the Bible, it's frequently robes. When you wear something ostentatious, you're actually hungry for a glory that we all actually long for. Let me explain what glory is. It is an immediately recognizable quality or uniqueness or individually that makes you stand out in a good way. That's what it is. If there were a great, great uh, sandbox of rocks right here with granite and other types of stone, but certain gems and precious metals spread throughout, you would have no trouble picking out which ones were more glorious. That's why in every society, uh, diamonds have always been worth more than pine cones and seashells. They have a glory that makes them stand out. Friends, there are people in this life right now who have an obvious standout quality and to such a degree that their names actually become words. You know there are names in the dictionary? I can say a name right now that is so glorious that you immediately evoke all sorts of images and thoughts about them. I say the word name, which has become a word, James Dean, and you have a concept in your mind of a rebel wearing a white t-shirt and a leather jacket. 
He has a certain individuality that has transcended most of his peers that is a glory. Glory is had in this world by a beauty or an exceptional athleticism or humor or bravery or statesmanship that smacks you in the face right when you encounter these people. The Hebrew word for glory actually means weight. Remember those stars which suck things into it? We talk about people who have a gravitas because they're glorious. And everyone in this room has had maybe a few brief moments of glory in your life, maybe where you're at the party and everything you said was just right. A comedian on a roll has glory. A chess player executing the perfect game has glory. An athlete who's able to score at all the right times has glory. A salesman who's able to close every deal has glory. Their power and their might and their value is immediately evident. Friends, I don't know if maybe you've always questioned your belonging, your special contribution. You've lived your life feeling like a wallflower who doesn't really fit anywhere, doesn't really stand out. And I want to tell you something. When you are resurrected on the last day, it will be immediately apparent from your very being that you belong in that heavenly place. To have a resurrection body of glory, it will be so obvious that the body of Christ would be incomplete without your special contribution. It will be so obvious that you belong there, that you bring something special to that eternity, that without you, it would be like a body without a limb or some vital organ. To say that we will be resurrected with glory is to anticipate a day where God's incredible glory and creativity shines on us in such a way that we shine it back with an irreducibly unique contribution to the whole. I just want to tell you right now, if you've ever felt, if you maybe felt your whole life like you have nothing special about you, the doctrine of the resurrection with a body of glory tells you the opposite. Whatever you feel like in time, it is but a small wedge of your eternal existence where you will belong absolutely. Wonderful thing that Jesus says, John 17, 22, right before he goes to the cross, he says, the glory, Father, which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I'll ask you a question. How many of you would say it's blatantly obvious that Jesus was a standout, necessary component of this human history. That's obvious to me. Well, friends, that's his glory. And he says that glory that the Father has given him, he's giving it to us who are resurrected with him. That's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. No body has ancillary useless limbs, nor will any of us be at the resurrection. The third contrast that we have is that the body of the resurrection is though sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Give your meditation to this truth. Adam's body was relatively weak physically and even in his creative capacity. I'll have you think about physical strength. 
at least three times of the many times that I have watched football games with Scott Hedgecock, he will ask this question. If you had a superpower and could be any player on the field and execute that position with perfection, what would you be? And Scott always says kicker. That no matter where he was on the field, he could always kick a field goal. And you'd win a lot of games like that. You'd never punt. You'd always just kick a field goal and you'd always score three points no matter what. I always say that I would be an offensive lineman. Reason being, you might notice I don't carry the physique of an offensive lineman. How epically awesome would it be if these extremely athletic 250-pound defenders just couldn't get past me in that O-line? Despite my current size, I'm just a monster and I can stop them. That sense of power that you can just look at other supremely gifted athletic men and be like, you can't get past me imagine it's exhilarating there's power even in things like being able to run well and fast i was a runner i'm going to tell you right now there's an exhilarating sense of freedom when you can run almost as fast as you can for a long long time and not get tired and just be like i can just keep doing this it's incredible it's the truth it feels good You have that unconscious ability to thread a football across the field. See, these are the sorts of physical feats of strength that we think of. But there's something even more powerful. It's called creativity. Some people have a brilliant power of creativity that when they put the pen to paper, they don't have to keep rewriting the same thing a thousand times. They're men named C.S. Lewis. They can just write a book in one sitting, and it's incredible. Creativity of being able to produce a work of art that is remarkable, by the acknowledgement of all and almost effortlessly. Friends, in telling us that our body will be full of power in the resurrection, it is there to let us contemplate what incredible, mighty, creative, unthinkable at the moment offerings of praise that we will bring to God forever. Everything we do in the resurrection will be a more brilliant expression of power and might and creativity. And it will never, ever seem hackneyed or it will never, never seem like it's just mundane and a reproduction of the praise before. It will be full of power and might. The essence of creativity, what flows out of you and I, will be an eternal expression of the creativity of God in whose image we are made. Wonder at it. I'm going to tell you the final contrast that Paul tells us about what is to come. We're told that it is sown a natural or a fleshly body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, what we have in Adam, there is also a spiritual body. Now note this, Adam's body was crafted for this natural world to live and to move about in it. But what we have to look forward to is a body permeated, even overflowing with God, the Holy Spirit himself. And let me tell you what this means. In the Bible, whenever the Holy Spirit is on a person, it comes with a newfound capacity of sight to see things that your natural eyes cannot. So, for example, John says to Nicodemus, who wants to be born again, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he speaks about being born of the Holy Spirit so that you can see it. 
all throughout the Gospels, Jesus says that these people have not been given eyes to see or ears to hear. They lack a power of sight that only the Holy Spirit can give them. And to say that we have a spiritual body means that this wonderful power of sight, whatever it is, will be on us always. In Ezekiel, frequently the prophet will say, and the spirit entered me, and the spirit gives him visions and an ability to see all of reality in a different way than he was before. And Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, says to this, for to us God revealed then the spiritual truths of the gospel through the spirit, for the spirit searches all things. And now we have received the spirit who is from God so that we might know or see the things freely given to us by God. Let me ask you to contemplate one thing. What if you could see as tangibly as you see this room about you, the very moral attributes of God? What if you could see as if tangibly God's infinite love for you just like you can peer across the Grand Canyon. What if you could also see the depths of your sin for what they were as if in visual form, as vividly as you see a swamp or unclean critters infesting some region? Trinitas Church, I submit to you that in eternity, this spiritual body with its spiritual capacity to see and to remember will know the depths of your sin like you have never known it before, almost tangibly, but it will be against the backdrop of an even bigger, greater, eternal, and infinite love for you in Jesus Christ. And it will be the sort of thing that your body is crafted to see and crafted to recognize as immediately as every visual stimuli round about you. This is what we have in store. This is what we have in store. Have you hoped for it? I'm just going to close by telling you, Trinitas Church, the reason we worship on Sunday is because there are many people who had trouble believing in the resurrection, and Jesus kept appearing to them on Sunday, the first day of the week, to let them know about the reality of his resurrection from the dead. The very day of his resurrection, two disciples were walking to a place called Emmaus. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And after Jesus broke bread with them, it says he opened their eyes and they could see him. The very next Sunday, a man named Thomas, who couldn't believe in the resurrection, kept doubting until Jesus showed up to him on that Lord's Day, that first day of the week, and appeared to him. Fifty days after the resurrection, yet another Sunday. Seven days after the first resurrection, resurrection from the dead. God pours out his Holy Spirit so that people would see the kingdom. We're even told that the book of Revelation was written on a Sunday. It opens by saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. There is an obvious rhetorical point to this. If you have trouble having joy for or anticipation or life from Christ's resurrection, there is no better place for you to be than in the worship of this, the Lord on the Lord's day. There's no better place. So many of you are looking for hope somewhere else. So many of us are not here on the Lord's day simply because we're tired and we think we have more life to be gained in bed. But the fact of the matter is that resurrection to come and the life associated with it is to be found on the Lord's day in the ordinary means of grace. And so many of us are anywhere but here. Anywhere but here. And our hope in the resurrection is waning. It's waning. 
Friends, if you want to see the resurrection, you need to come where the resurrected Lord told you to be. This is challenging as a culture. It's challenging for us as a church too. The reality is it's not infrequent on a Lord's Day, especially in a great Northwest summer where the church begins with 12 people here. Are we coming to anticipate and to celebrate the resurrection of Christ? If so, let us do so with some punctuality and joy. There are good reasons not to be here, friends. I don't mean to pick on you if you've been sick or estranged for reasons that inhibit you from being here. But ask yourself if it's really just a lack of anticipation of the resurrection to come and the foretaste of it in our worship. Let's come together and worship on the Lord's Day, brothers and sisters. Bow your heads with me. Holy God, we have confused hearts. We read right past your promises. Give them no meditation. Find ourselves distracted by some of the most mundane things in the creation. And then lament our lack of sense that you are with us. Holy God, we pray that our appetites would be wet for the resurrection. Holy God, we pray that you would feed us every Lord's day, that you would draw us here by your spirit, and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lift us up, we pray. May we leave this place with a joy and a gladness that is not natural, but the supernatural fruits of the resurrection. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen.